and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, where we go back, back to, to the, the past bad. and read some comic books from the yesteryear of publishing. You can hear us every other Sunday on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed, and you can get that on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or from your signal watch that goes Z, 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 right? Uh-huh. Uh, we have a special comic here today, one that I, we almost weren't going to do, but we changed our minds, decided that uh, uh, this wasn't as bad as we thought. We might be wrong about that. Um, We're kind of throwing caution to the wind. A little bit. This, this, this might be our last ever episode, folks, depending on uh, what kind of death threats we get. But this one was requested by Toby Hagen. He's uh, at Toby Hagen on Twitter. Uh, and he also has a website and a podcast, 42shadesofgeek.com. Comic he wanted to do was Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 106 from November 1970, titled I Am Curious, Black, in parentheses. Written by Robert Kaniger and art by Werner Roth and Vince Coletta. Yeah, it's a play on that I Am Curious yellow, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Don't know what that is, but I know it's a thing. It is a thing, but I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> Before we get into the issue, we're going to meet our creators, starting with uh, Robert Kaniger. Uh, he was born June 18th, 1915 in New York City, passed away May 7th, 2002 in Fishkill, New York. He's the son of Romanian Jewish immigrants, Rebecca and Ephraim. Uh, he sold short stories in his teen years. Uh, in 1932, he won the New York Times Collegiate Short Story Contest. Yeah, as a teenager, pretty pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he would write, direct, and at one time even act in uh, radio programs. Uh, he played a young Major Washington in a radio program called The Cavalcade of America, which uh, aired on February 18th, 1946. Uh, he began writing comics in the Golden Age, including uh, the original Blue Beetle from Fox Features, uh, The Web and Steel Sterling, which is from MLJ, which we now know better as Archie. Mm-hmm. And even uh, Captain Marvel Adventures for our friends at Fawcett. Uh, he published How to Make Money Writing for the Stage in 1950, um, 1943. Uh, that was published by Cambridge House. Uh, he included a section for writing in comics, um, which is probably the first tutorial on the subject. Yeah, and this was apparently was very uh, popular for young writers at the time. Uh, from what I could tell, it was pretty lucrative for him to sell this thing. You got to wonder who he might have uh, inspired, impressed upon, and yeah. inspired. Yeah. yeah. Um, now he was hired by Sheldon Maya to uh, himself to uh, All American Comics in 1945, and he was uh, quickly promoted to editor. Uh, he wrote for the Justice Society of America in All Star Comics. Uh, we're we're guessing the opening and closing bookend tales that connected the individual character stories with him, because that was kind of an anthology. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, they would split up and do their own thing each character. Uh, yeah, it always seemed like they were meeting for dinner at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, something like that, and then they, they got <laughs> and their they mission. Conclude. Yeah, yeah, they'd have their cup of coffee at the end. Um, now he wrote a uh, a regular Hawkman feature in Flash Comics. He wrote about Green Lantern in Green Lantern Comics. Hey, <laughs> yeah, why not? And he edited uh, Wonder Woman from issue seventeen um, until issue uh, one hundred and seventy six, which wow. would be uh, May June nineteen forty six to May June nineteen sixty eight. That's a hell of a run. I mean, that, that's a full career of Wonder Woman right there. Absolutely, you, know, just you can retire it. off run to Wonder Woman. A <laughs> tour of duty. Um, now, when Wonder Woman creator William Moulton Marston passed away in nineteen forty seven. Kaniga took up a long tenure writing the title as well. Uh, he began with issue number 22, which was cover dated March, April 1947. Uh, it's sort of weird that George edited the same title that he wrote, 
Uh, but it was neither the first or last time this would happen. No, yeah, I mean, it's sort of weird, but it's not that weird, believe it. No. <laughs> it becomes a bone of contention for some people in the early 80s. That's right. And uh, it probably gave us a lot of comics we would not have had otherwise. Yeah. Um, now, Kaniga wrote the, the Black Canary, a six-page Johnny Thunder story, which introduced the Black Canary. And that was in Flash Comics number 86, uh, cover date August 1947. And uh, this was also artist uh, Carmine Infantino's uh, first published work for DC. Yeah, wow. So, you know, he's uh, got quite a DC pedigree, and that, that continues on. In 1952, Kaniger began editing and writing for the Big Five DC Comics war titles. That was G.I. Combat, Our, Our, Our Army at War, Our Fighting Forces, All-American Men of War, and Star-Spangled War Stories. He co-created Sergeant Rock in Our Army of War, number 83, June 1959, cover date, with Joe Kubert. And he wrote a, a little, something you might have heard of, a Julius Schwartz-inspired, reinvented version of The Flash in Showcase number 4, uh, mm. October 1956. Yeah, it might have had an impact on the industry. A little bit. That was also drawn by Carmen Infantino, and this, as we know now, kicked off with the Silver Age of comic books. Um, he began a definitive nine-year run on Wonder Woman with artist Ross Andrew and uh, with issue 98. Uh, it's May 1958. This is the one a lot of people consider to be the classic uh, yeah. true run, although that's uh, arguable, of course, as to what is the true run. Uh, he co-created with Ross Andrew the original version of The Suicide Squad and The Brave and the Bold, number 25, September 1959, cover date. And again, with Ash, with Ross, <laughs> with Ross Andrew co-created mm -hmm. the Metal Men in Showcase number thirty-seven. That was March, April, nineteen sixty-two. Which I really would have credited to Bob Haney, but absolutely, it was not him. It was Kaniger uh, and Andrew um, co-created with Sheldon Moldoff, Poison Ivy, and Batman number one eighty-one. That was June nineteen sixty-six. And he had his hand in many other creations, particularly in the war comics that he was so well known for. Uh, really too numerous and too complex to adequately de detail here. Some are characters, others were feature stories and in, in successive issues that became, you know, part of the canon. Uh, some he contributed the character but did not write the initial story, or in the case of The Flash, he got, someone, Schwartz gave him the character and he wrote the story. So... Because uh, didn't he not write the first uh, Sergeant Rock? He just created him? That's right, he didn't write it. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember who he gave that to. Was it Haney? You know what? That might that might be that when might we got Haney. to it when we yeah. were when we were talking about Bob Haney and we realized that Kaniger had co-created and given to him the first story. So this is the way things went back when uh, comic creators used to actually collude with each other. Yes, they were friends. Yeah, this uh, we don't see that so much anymore. But uh, yeah, anyway. But suffice to say, he did a lot for DC uh, and DC comics. Uh, he he also wrote two stories for Marvel Comics: Weep for a Lost Nightmare and Iron Man. Uh, number 44, 1972, that was penciled by George Tuska. And Running for Love in Our Love Story, number 19, October 1972, penciled by Gene Colan. And he's got a quote later, he'll be talking about that experience. Uh, Kanig, I can't imagine seeing Gene Colan on a romance book. You know, I guess it's whatever. It's it's It really does seem almost like a weird use of his talents, but... Yeah, I, you always, know. I always put him with the, the horror you know, genre. The horror stuff, or even like, you know, going into the, the late 60s, I'd put him with superheroes, you know, uh, mm -hmm. sort of like Marvel's Neil Adams. But, sure. uh, you know, then as now, a paycheck is a paycheck is a paycheck. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if you're going to pay me to draw the romance, I'll do it. Uh, and, who, and for all I know, that could be one of the most amazing romance stories. I've never read uh, Running for Love or Our Love Story. So uh, maybe I'll get to that eventually. 
Kanegar returned as writer-editor of the Wonder Woman title with issue number 204, January-February 1973, and restored the character's powers and traditional costume. Around 1977, Kanegar taught for a year at the Joe Kuber School of Cartoon and Graphic Art, and he received the Bill Finger Award in 2014, and that's, of course, an award given posthumously uh, to comics creators that, that people did feel did not get their proper recognition recognition while alive. I think Arnold Drake is also a recipient of that, uh, among many others. Now, uh, Kanigo, he had a somewhat of an unstable personality and a violent temper, and he could be difficult to work with. We do have a quote from Gene Colan. He says, I worked on a series with Kanigo. He wrote two series for me in the romance department, one about an airline stewardess and one about a nurse. He used to compliment me whenever he'd see me in the bullpen. He'd say, like the stuff, like the stuff. That was, about the, that was the amount of conversation we had. Then one day, we were in an elevator together, and he said, like the stuff. I, like an innocent fool, I used to do some adjustments to his pages. If he had a heavy copy panel, I might take a balloon from one panel and put it in the next, just because it was distributing space. It was so stupid and naive. I said to him, it doesn't bother you, does it, that I sometimes switch some of the panels around and move some of the balloons from one panel to another. He started to chew me out in the elevator. <laughs> Who the hell do you think you are changing my stuff? Where do you come off changing my stuff? You don't know anything about this business. Well, that's some nice words from a uh, mentor, you know, or whatever, someone else in the biz. Uh, And it also tells me he doesn't read his finished work. No, exactly. Yeah, he had no idea. He had no idea that they were changing it, nor did he. He only cared once it was uh, brought to his attention. he was also pretty famous for being pretty uh, sarcastic and snippy in his letters columns, uh, particularly towards the end of his career in Wonder Woman. And I have one example here from Wonder Woman 209. That was December 1973, January 1974. Uh, a reader known as B wrote a letter that he that was heavily and pointlessly, I think, censored by <laughs> Kaniger. Because uh, it's censored, we don't know. But uh, yeah. it's pretty long, but I really want to read the whole thing here. So... Uh, Dear editor, I sadly mourn the passing of Wonder Woman. She had such potential. Sure, the book isn't dead, but it might as well be. There are so many things wrong with the book that I shall take them one at a time. First off is Diana Prince's liberated personality. This can't be the same Wonder Woman who was heard saying, censored. No one, be they Amazon or human, can censored. Furthermore, anyone who looks as good as Diana does wouldn't go around making herself up to be this homely. Even her views are censored. She sits there and puts down Morgan Tracy because he won't notice her because she's homely. But what about her? She doesn't give a censored about the janitor in the UN with his skinny nose, bald head, and false teeth who might be falling over his bucket and mop in love with Diana the person. No, she can't be bothered with all the homely men at the UN. She has to spend her time cringing over some handsome, sophisticated man about town censored. Talk about chauvinistic attitudes. Prince is more censored than Tracy. At least he isn't a hypocrite. Secondly, Mr. Kaniger, are your are your views. You're censored. Where do you pick out people such as Keach? So, surely he's not patterned after any real person. I know no one that rude or that narrow-minded. If you think this censored is what people want to read, you have got to be kidding. Either that or you need to have your head examined. You try to do a woman's lib book, and then you make the chick look like censored. Then to top it off, you write into the story a scene where lots of censored, also the last page. Thirdly, I would like to mention the great art. There wasn't any. 
You're the comic <laughs> editor, Mr. Kaniger. You not only mess up the story, but you all take out the best art Wonder Woman has ever had and put in the most mediocre you can find. Fourthly, dialogue. Shades of Neptune, sh- Thunderbolts of Jove, Ola, Hola, Great Hera, Suffering Sappho, and Merciful Minerva have got to go. This, censored, is too bad. It makes radio comics look good. Fifth, that title, Target Wonder Woman. She isn't the target, dummy. Tracy was. Don't you ever read your own stories? Sixth and last, censored. Mr. Kaniger, you have added a new level of quality to WW. It's about five rungs below the past all-time low. Congratulations. To which Kanagura gathered his brothers and replied, Dear B, censored. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the type of correspondence you could, you could expect uh, when Kanagura was at the wheel. Um, yeah. we'll uh, go does on. he have a Twitter? I know. I, I don't think so. <laughs> Not anymore. Maybe, maybe we can get a uh, things uh, Kanagura said t- tweet going <laughs> and uh, maybe people will jump on there. Uh, now on to the artist, Werner Roth. He was born January 27th, 1921. He passed away June 1st, 1973. He began drawing for Marvel Comics then, Atlas, in 1953. Stan Lee was so impressed with Roth's portfolio, he said, So I took his samples to show the then-publisher, Martin Goodman. I suggest we, could use, we should use Werner to create a comic for him, which we did. And that was how Lorna the Jungle Girl was born. Uh, that debuted as Lord of the Jungle Queen, number one, 1953, chained to Jungle Girl with issue number five in February 1954. He drew it until issue 12, March 1955. Most of it was uh, written by Don Rico. I just think it's interesting that, you know, he walked into Marvel and he got his own comic. Sure. Uh, that's sort of the, the, you know, the comic uh, creator's dream right there. Absolutely. Uh, he drew a ton for them during the Atlas era, including some well-regarded Apache Kid stories and covers. He drew romance stories for DC Comics through the late 50s and 60s, but he returned to Marvel in 1965, initially using the name Jay Gavin, uh, which was the name of his two sons, uh, you know, stuck together. Uh, and he immediately, he immediately succeeded Jack Kirby on X-Men number 14 in November 1965 cover date. Uh, his true identity was revealed in the bullpen bulletin of Fantastic Four number 54, that was September 1966, so in a whole different comic. Uh, I think that's interesting. <laughs> I think it really shows, too, like, the connectivity of Marvel happening at the time, that, you know, people were, if you were reading one Marvel comic, you were probably reading them all. Yeah. Um, this was Marvel's, the bullpen bulletin was Marvel's news and information page that ran from 65 to 2001. Uh, pretty much every publisher had something like this, though, in various incarnations over time. Um, and he drew more romance and westerns for Marvel and, of course, penciled several issues of Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, obviously, as we're finding out. But he did not have a run of consecutive issues, but his very first one that he penciled was this one, numbered 106. So, look at that. But as you, as you see, like, he passed away in uh, seven, 1973, so he didn't live very long, and not no. long after this issue came out. Absolutely. Uh, next up, we got Vince Coletta, Ooh. Vicente Coletta, mm. born eight, uh, October 15th, 1923, in Castaldaccia, Italy. <laughs> he died uh, June 3rd, 1991. Uh, he's the son of Rosa and Frank Coletta, the latter of whom was a high-level mafioso that fled Sicily to escape the law. Uh, settled in Brooklyn, uh, the wife and son, Vince, uh, met him 10 years later. Uh, the family moved to New Jersey, opened a legitimate Italian restaurant. Mm-hmm. I've heard stories about that. Oh yeah, 
I think uh, during uh, when we were doing our Charlton research, uh, Paul Kupperberg made some comments about the uh, the legitimate restaurant. The colli- well, you know, a legitimate Italian <laughs> restaurant still is like a, probably a, a little bit its hands in a few things, but you know, yes, <laughs> legitimate enough. No deaths were happening on the premises, I guess. Maybe. Um, attended the, <laughs> no, no, of course there weren't. Uh, attended the New Jersey Academy of Fine Arts. I uh, served in World War II doing paintings on the side of bombers. Uh, married his wife, Viola, in 1950. They had one son named Franklin. Uh, he would break into comics in 1952, penciling and inking his own work for uh, better publications on the titles uh, Intimate Love and Out of the Shadows. And uh, for publisher Youthful Magazines and print uh, Pix Parade on their title Daring Love. Now, in 1953, just like uh, Werner Roth, he uh, would begin his decades-long association with Marvel Comics, which was, as I said, then Atlas. Mainly as an inker, though he did pencil romance comics initially. In the mid-1950s, he did work outside of Marvel, freelancing as a penciler for the, on the DC Comics romance titles Falling in Love, Girls' Love Stories, and Heartthrobs, uh, and Charlton Comics' Love Diary and Teen Confessions. His last confirmed pencil work for decades was I Can't Marry Now in Love Diary Number 6, September 1959. Uh, I just find it interesting he really settled in as an inker uh, and, yeah. and found his calling. And I think anyone you know that knows his work, he definitely lends uh, a, a real great sh- sharp line to things. He definitely knows what Certainly. he's doing or knew what he was doing, uh, rather. Mm. Um, but he's best known for his great work inking Jack Kirby. First time he did this was either the cover of Kid Cult Outlaw Number 100, uh, September 1961, for which he is not credited, but people are pretty sure he did do it. Or he was credited for sure on the cover of Lo- Love Romances Number 98. That was March 1962. So that would definitely be, if, not, if the other one isn't, the uh, second yeah. one is definitely the first time Love Romances. And in the 1960s, Vince Coletta worked on pretty much every Marvel title. Yeah, he began his uh, six-year run on Kirby's The Mighty Thor feature with the uh, Tales of Asgard backup in, uh, that appeared in Journey into Mystery number 106, cover date July 1964. Uh, Coletta graduated to the lead fi- feature with issue 116 uh, just about a year later in May 1965. Uh, he continued through the book's uh, retitling to The Mighty Thor. They dropped the Journey into Mystery nomenclature there. That was with issue number 126. March 1966, except for one issue, which is uh, issue 143. He inked it through to 167, which was August 1969. Uh, he picked up again from uh, 176, which was May 1970, to Kirby's final issue, 179, which was August 1970, although John Buscema drew uh, issue 178, uh, yeah. but Coletta did ink that one as well. Yep. Uh, he also inked the Journey into Mystery Annual, number one, which is 1965 which introduced uh, the uh, Marvel character Hercules into the Marvel Universe. Uh, he also did the Mighty Thor King Size Annual number 2. Uh, he's already been freelancing for DC Comics when Jack Kirby jumped over in uh, 1970, so uh, he stepped up his, his output. Yeah, he sort of became like linked to Kirby, and I think he was happy to be there. Absolutely, yeah. why not? <laughs> that's, that's a good place to be if yep. you can get it. Uh, he inked uh, Kirby's two black-and-white magazine one-shots, which were In the Days of the Mob and Spirit World. Both came out October, both cover dated October 1971. Uh, he inked the initial issues of uh, Kirby's uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen and the fourth world titles that included uh, The Forever People, Mr. Miracle, and The New Gods. 
Uh, he would do lots of work for DC through the 70s, including Batman, Green Lantern, and the tie-in to the uh, television show Isis. Mm-hmm. That was part of the DC TV uh, that's right. imprint there. Yep, along with Shazam and... Uh, Shazam and Welcome Back, Carter. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he, he inked uh, nearly every issue of Wonder Woman from 206 to 270. That's uh, from July of 73 to August of 1980. It's a hell of a run there, too. He's sick, yeah. Yeah, for three of those years, he was uh, DC's art director. Uh, that was from May 1976 to May 1979. Uh, he's credited with discovering a, a very young Frank Miller, which is uh, pretty cool. Sure. Uh, he inked for Marvel, DC, and Skywald Publications horror magazine, uh, Psycho, well into the 1980s. And his last known inking credit is for Fred Hembeck Descru- Destroys the Marvel Universe in July 1989. Which is sort of a strange note to end on, but okay. A bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of all things, but I guess someone's got to ink it and he was there. Um, now this this one um, is really interesting to me, and I'm going to warn people now, the language is going to get a little bit blue as I quote Vince Coletta uh, here. Mm-hmm. When editor-in-chief Jim Shooter was fired, was fired from Marvel in 1987, Vince Coletta penned a scathing letter that was widely circulated. He, he really thought Jim Shooter was the bee's knees, and he let it be known by saying, Marvel editors, you are the droppings of the creative world. You were destined to float in the cesspool till urine logged. And finally sink to the bottom with the rest of the shit. But along came Jim Shooter, who rolled up his sleeves and rescued you. He gave you a title, respectability, power, and even a credit card that you used and abused. He made you the highest paid editors in the history of the business. He protected you against all that would temper tamper with your rights, your power, and your pocketbook. He backed you against all prima donna freelancers, no matter how big. His pockets were always open to you. No cry of help was too small for him to turn his back on. As heard in the brass section of the company, he never asked for anything for himself, always for his men. The roof over your head, the clothes on your back, the car you drive, and the trinkets you buy for your blind wives and girlfriends you owe to the Pittsburgh kid. For all he did for you, you repaid him by attacking him like a pack of yellow prickless faggots, ripping away his flesh from his body and laughing and pounding at your chest by conquering ghouls, and long after his bones were dry, you continued to pour salt on them to squeeze every ounce of pain out of him. Not the slightest whimper or cry of, or tear came out of this man. With you still biting at his ankles, he put on his coat and walked away, displaying more class and poise and defeat than all of you did in victory. Jesus had one Judas. Jim had many, me- those that speared him, and worse, those that watched. I stuck by him, and for that, you've nailed me on the same cross. I thank you for that. It's an honor to be crucified with Jim Shooter, a man who none of you will ever be, Vince Coletta. Wow. Woo. All right. Vince, uh, let it be known he did not appreciate this uh, behavior, and it's mm-hmm. true. If his last inking credit was in 89, it probably uh, this probably was the last work he did right around this time. Yeah, I bet. Now, after a heart attack, he was diagnosed with cancer and passed away three weeks later. The Comics Journal erroneously stated he died at age 65. He was really 67. And they said he died in late June, and he, he really died in uh, June on June 1st of 73. Not close enough, right? Yeah, good enough. No, that was a, that was a very interesting piece you found there with uh, the, the shooter uh, letter. That's... Some sobering stuff. Definitely. Well, you know, we've we've heard some people, especially more recently, he's kind of, uh, you know, people's attitude towards Shooter has softened it's over softened, time. Yeah. But here was somebody, you know, right at the front lines, and he he stood up for Shooter. And uh, as we will talk about 
in a future episode of Weird Comics History, he's not totally wrong. Jim Shooter uh, gets a bad rap sometimes. He yeah. did a lot for the company. Absolutely. He did a lot for the industry as well. But that's a story for another time. Now, let's talk about Lois Lane a little bit. Give you a brief history of uh, the character here. She uh, first appeared in Action Comics number one. That's a highly collectible issue yeah, from uh, June 1938. Uh, she is the daughter of Ella and Sam Lane, who in the modern continuity is a retired general. And Lois is an army brat born on Ramstein Air Base in Germany. And uh, Sam Lane was also part of Lex Luthor's cabinet when he was elected president. That's right. Yeah. She has a youngest sister named Lucy, and she's a star journalist for the Daily Planet. Was it the Daily Star at this point, or was it the Planet? In the early ones, it would have been the Star. The Star. Uh, you're right. Yeah. But yeah, we, today we, we know it as the Planet. Although not actually today, they've got somehow both newspapers operating in the same city. So <laughs> they no, do. whatever. <laughs> They got a healthy, uh, a healthy paper news. Uh, yeah, really. Yeah, it's the only place <laughs> in the world that's happening. <laughs> yes, uh, she's the object of affection for Claude Kent, although she only has eyes for Superman. Ain't that always the way? Seems to be. Yeah. Uh, in the 1940s, Lois had her own comic strip, which was called Lois Lane Girl Reporter. This was by uh, the creators themselves, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. This appeared as a topper for 12 consecutive Sundays above the Superman strip. This is from uh, October 24th, 1943 through uh, February 27th, 1944. Uh, she starred in her first uh, you know, full-length comic story in uh, Superman number 28, which is May 1944. The story is titled The Suicidal Swain. And it's uh, particularly notable because Superman does not appear at all. Yeah, that might be the first time that happened, although I'm not sure. There may have been Jimmy Olsen stories or whatever, but yeah, no Superman. No Superman at all in a title that bears his name. Yeah. Uh, Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, began with uh, the March-April 1958 issue and ran for a ridiculous 137 regular issues. It's amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, plus uh, two 80-page giants, and uh, the last one came out to cover date September, October 1974. Amazing. 20 years. Yeah, I mean, you know, we still, we're still we reading a 106 right now. It's still got four more years to go. We're not even, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you like, we can't get a Batman series to go that long now. Oh, God. Without getting restarted. Yeah. Oh, if, we, if I saw 37 regular issues, I think it was incredible. <laughs> Are you kidding me? 137. Uh, Lois Lane would go on to become a television reporter. She'd eventually marry Superman. She'd eventually become a robot. <laughs> but uh, all that lies very far ahead in Ms. Lane's show. Yeah, well, we'll talk about a little bit of that, not so much the robot part, but we will come back to Lois Lane after we talk about uh, the actual issue at hand, Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 106. Uh, now, this cover might be one of the most uh, well-known, passed-around images on the Internet. It's a rare instance of a sequence of panels running on the front of a book. Uh, even for the Silver Age, this is somewhat rare, but it did happen. Yeah. But, you know, but yeah, we basically get like a, a little comic strip right here on the on the very cover. Uh, Superman closes a kicky Lois Lane in a short orange dress with a matching headband inside a sarcophagus. We see him fiddle with some dials and her sarcophagus glows with her inside of it. And uh, then she emerges in the third panel as a black woman. And there's even some word balloons on the cover, something that you really rarely see today, although back then it wasn't that unusual. You have Superman saying... Are you are you sure you want to go through with this, Lois? And Lois replies, Yes, Superman. Close the body mold and switch on the power. It's important that I live the next 24 hours as a black woman. Hmm. 
So now the title page is a scene that clearly takes place later in the book uh, because Lois <laughs> is already black and wearing a purple and green dashiki she stole from Lex Luthor's tailor. Yes. Uh, she's badgering Superman, but to give away this dialogue would be giving away the scene, so we'll put a pin in that for now. It's the title. This is not an imaginary tale, not a fantasy, not a dream. It's today. It's now. It's the moment of truth. I am curious. Black. Uh, our story begins at the Daily Planet, where Lois is in a fashionable bob hairdo and a green neckerchief, and she's gloating to Clark Kent over getting an assignment to do a story on Little Africa. You know, the plum assignment for reporters, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, that would be Metropolis's black neighborhood. The only one. Yeah, the only one, exactly. And uh, Lois says, I should get the Pulitzer Prize for telling it like it is. The nitty-gritty no newspaper ever printed before. So Clark, uh, he cocks an eyebrow and decides he's gonna he's gonna maybe tag along as Superman to make sure she's safe. Yeah, well, he heard the neighborhood gets a little tough after dark, so he wants to be there. Yeah. Now Lois gets a ride from Benny the Beret. He's a cab driver who's willing to wait for her as she does her investigating. And he's wearing a beret, by the way. I he, you wonder oh, where yes. he got the name. <laughs> Truth and advertising. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is great. She approaches a group of kids happily, and they all run away. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> She enters a nearby slum tenement and, and just knocks on a door. Lois says, if the kids won't talk to me, maybe an adult will. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. Lois, op uh, the, a woman opens the door, just a crack, you know, and then sees Lois's pasty white face and slams the door. And the, the sound effect in this panel uh, particularly just reminds me of old Plastic Man. It's like vertical and the, the way the lettering is, I don't know, something round about it. It just... Yeah, I found it very aesthetically pleasing. I wanted to just point it out. Absolutely. Now, uh, Lois is seen out and about in Little Africa. She's uh, at the coffee shop. She's passing some local guys uh, playing dice in the alleyway. Uh, and wherever she goes, she is shunned. A woman with a baby even walks away from her haughtily as Lois tries to tickle the kid's chin. Which you can't really blame her. I mean, you just shouldn't touch a stranger's child. That's not really a good form. Yeah, I, I, maybe the social mores were a little different then, but I, I don't know if I would, that. You know, I would be creeped out by it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, I've never seen you before. Why are you touching my kid? Mm -hmm. um, but the, 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 the image of her actually tickling a kid's chin is hilarious. It is. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Gucci, Gucci, no. coo. It's like that's who she's going to try to get the story from, this because <laughs> that's the only one that will talk to her. Uh, now, Lois wonders, according to the caption, like a, like a homeless ghost. She's wandering through town here. Uh, she finds herself at a bus stop bench sitting next to a blind woman. This woman is actually very friendly and receptive until Lois opens her gob and says something. <laughs> the uh, woman can tell by her the tone of her voice that she's a white woman, and uh, she walks away briskly, tapping her cane all the way. Yeah, and Lois, she, you know, there are a lot of there's a lot of Lois thinking to herself yes. in this book, and it's all in thought balloons. This is not the modern era where it's done in captions. So yeah, we're not embarrassed by that yet. Exactly. So you got to <laughs> think about these all. These are all puffy, cloudy uh, thought balloons, and she thinks to herself. The freeze is still on. The only reason that nice old lady spoke to me is because she's blind. When she heard me speak, she knew I was white. Uh, Lois passes by a group of people listening to someone making a speech. Which was probably a thing in the late 70s, right? It seems that way, yeah. It, it seems like that was more common. Uh, nowadays, it's just usually people ranting and raving about the invisible specters that they see. That's what I always see on my corners. <laughs> yes. uh, the guy speaking points at Lois and says, Look at her, brothers and sisters. She's young and sweet and pretty. But never forget, she's whitey. 
She'll let us shine her shoes and sweep her floors and babysit for her kids. But she doesn't want to let our kids into her little lily-white schools. It's okay with her if we leave these rat-infested slums if we don't move next to her. And that's why she's our enemy. And Lois thinks to herself, he's wrong about me, but right about so many others. And she thinks to herself while walking in Metropolis's black neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, I don't recall Lois really agitating for equitable housing in Metropolis before. I'm pretty sure she no. lives in a swank penthouse, probably like nowhere near here, like, you know, Midtown. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's a, she's a, you know, poppin' reporter, so she doesn't have to think about such things. But uh, eventually, dejected, she plops down on a park bench and stalking Superman shows up. <laughs> and that's when Lois gets an idea. She explains her plan off-panel, and Superman flies her to the fortress. Flies her to the fortress of solitude, and inside the Arctic fortress, Superman. Uh, we have a little bit of a recap of the cover here. We have Superman right. saying, "Are you sure you want to step inside the pl- plastimold, Lois? Do you know what's going to happen when I pull the switch of the Trent? <laughs> what the Transformer Flux pack? You never heard of that, Chris? You never... I think I got a couple in the attic. I think I think you got you got to check your Transformer Flux pack. It might be it might have run out. Uh, yeah. Lois responds, "I do. I've used this machine before. Go ahead." Yeah, we're uh, thank we were helpfully told by a caption that the Plastimold machine was invested by Darnell, a Kryptonian surgeon, as told in Lois Lane number ninety. And uh, that's indeed true. Cover date, uh, February 1969, and a story titled, Lois Lane's Future Husband. Which we may uh, do some other day. You never know. <laughs> Superman throws a switch on the plasmold, and uh, it comes to life with a... Over four panels, Lois is encased in the mold that gives her the appearance of a black woman. And it somehow works under her clothing and affects the texture of her hair. It's really... Well, I mean, is this really a plastimold machine, or is it a machine to turn white people black? Because that seems to do soup to nuts everything, but yes, uh, it's, it it's, it's really something. Now, uh, Superman warns her, you know, you'll, you'll be black for one day only, and then she'll be white again. Um, she has Superman fly her back home to change into some new togs. Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. When Lois steps out of her... When she steps out, she's in a purple and green dashiki and matching purple head wrap. And it's starting to pour rain. It's a sun shower. Yeah. And Lois, uh, she thinks to herself, a I sun shower. Line. I don't want to ruin my beautiful Afro attire. There's Benny the Beret. How lucky. He'll taxi me to Little Africa. And I'll really be accepted. Learn the inside story of what it means to be black. We want to remind you to forward all your complaints and hate mail to Toby Hagen. That is uh, 42shadesofgeek.com. Yes, please. Uh, you know, we don't need the blowback. <laughs> no. Uh, now, Benny the Beret, who was so, so polite earlier in the issue, drives right past her as she's hailing this cab, and he pulls over a little bit down the way for a white dude who's wearing a very snappy fedora. I mean, like like 15 feet away. He couldn't be yeah. more. He couldn't be snubbing her more. Obviously, it's kind yeah. Of he crazy. saw her very yeah, clearly. Yeah, definitely. But uh, she thinks to herself, "So, this is the way it is. The color of my money isn't good enough." Benny gave me my first lesson in the meaning of black. Is this issue over yet? Oh, got a little bit more to go. <laughs> uh, Lois is forced to take the subway, uh, and it's pretty good rendering of a period subway car. Says me, sure. who would know that kind of thing. Uh, and there she feels like everyone is staring at her. However, based on the artwork, no one appears to be very concerned with Lois. Uh, there's only one dude looking in her direction. Yeah, I, it really seems to be just I think she's projecting. a little yeah. self-conscious, and she thinks to herself, I feel so conspicuous, yet I'm the same person I was before. 
Only my skin is black. And she's wearing this ridiculous <laughs> purple and green hat with a Sinestro fringe collar. Yeah. So let, let's forget about that. <laughs> uh, Lo- Lois exits the subway in Little Africa, philosophizing on what it means to be black. Uh, too much to really dive into here. <laughs> and uh, she re-enters the same tenement where she was snubbed earlier. Inside, she sees a pile of trash that's on fire under the stairs. Lois is luckily able to extinguish the trash fire by beating it with other trash. Uh, somehow. Now, a woman comes out of a nearby door as Lois is finishing saving the entire building. Yeah, just in time. Yes, this resident goes, Are you all right, honey? This place is a fire trap from, from the stuff people leave here because our slumlord claims he can't afford a janitor any more than to take away this garbage. I think that there's got to be a better solution than to just jam all the garbage under the stairs, right? You know, I mean, they got to come yeah. up with something, you know, maybe some kind Put of it a... on the curb, maybe. I don't you know, know. You know, maybe, uh, you know, people could sign up on a sheet, you know, and different people, they swap <laughs> the job. I don't know. And it's like, do they own bags? It's, you know, it's just a heap of trash. It really yeah. is. I guess that's, you know, you don't know the ghetto. You won't understand the ghetto, Chris. That's yeah. how it is. I, I, I can't speak for it. Uh, now, uh, this woman who's just met Lois, she invites her into her shabby apartment for a cup of coffee. The resident says, hope you're not a bill collector. Money's tighter, <laughs> Money's tighter around here than my son Lonnie's blue jeans, and they're tighter than his skin. Sort of a weird comment, Mom, but okay, we'll let that go. Uh, yes. Piece of plaster from the ceiling falls into Lois's cup of coffee, and the woman says it's a normal occurrence and that the flat hasn't been painted since Noah landed in his ark. Mm-hmm. A baby cries, Mama, from another room, uh, and the woman rushes in, grabbing a broom along the way. Inside the room, she shoes away a rat with the swat of a broom. She goes, we've got a quote-unquote tenant. He doesn't pay any rent. But that doesn't stop him. I get nightmares thinking about what will happen if this broom ever won't scare him back into his hole. Yeah, you're going to need a bigger broom, lady. Mm-hmm. The woman picks up her baby, who looks more like a young girl all of a sudden. Really kind of a weird art change, but okay. Sure. She's supposed to be a baby. Uh, and soothes her child. It, it's all right, honey. Mama's here. And she says this to Lois. I haven't asked who you are or what you're here for. Can I help you, sister? And Lois thinks with tears forming at her in her eyes. She lives in misery, yet asks if she can help me. It is just a colloquialism, Lois. I think she's more interested in knowing just what the hell you're doing here than if she can actually do something for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's like when you say, how you doing? You really don't want much more than a few words. No, well exactly. Response. You're basically saying hello and goodbye. So Yeah. Can I help you? Yes, please. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I didn't mean um, that. <laughs> now, Lois steps outside. Yeah, she, we don't even know if she even responded to this woman's question. Did I mean, she just walk away silently? Yeah, as it as it looks like, just she didn't. She was thinking to herself last panel. It's like she just walked out of the freaking apartment and left the place. She could have just slapped her in the face and walked out. We don't know. <laughs> uh, in an empty lot, there's an impoverished preschool where someone dressed like one of the Riddler's henchmen teaches that black is beautiful. A fellow by the name of Dave Stevens taps Lois on the shoulder. And that's the same dude who was given the anti-Lois speech earlier in the day. Mm. He says, uh, you look familiar, which is probably just the pickup line because she looks absolutely nothing like she did when she was a white woman. Yeah. Uh, now, Dave spots the kids going into an alleyway. He says, those kids, dropouts, they should be in school. I've got an idea who they're going to meet in that alley. Stay here. This is man's business. Yeah, lines like that have always worked very well on Lois Lane in the past. 
She's been known to stay put. Oh, absolutely. Especially when you tell her that it's man's business. So that'll, that'll, she understands. Yeah. Yeah. She'll, she'll sit on a bench and wait. Um, now Lois and Dave rush into the alley to find the kids dealing with some, you know, typical comic hoodlums, uh, both wearing garish suits and fedora bands. You can tell a lot about a guy from his fedora band, let me tell you. Yes. And these, these guys are up to no good for sure. Absolutely. Dave goes, You rats, teaching these kids to steal so they could buy you a poison. Hanging's too good for you. This is like a one stop shopping crime ring, you know? Te- it is. Teach them to steal, sell them the drugs. You know, if you got them to do uh, gambling, you'd have it all. Yeah. Um, the hoods open fire on Lois and Dave, and Dave is hit. Stalking Superman shows up right away, melts the hoods' guns with his heat vision, and pretty much takes care of them. And, you know, but doesn't mil- stop the dude from getting shot. No, he, he, he only shows up <laughs> afterward. You know, listen, he's, he only helps those who help themselves. That's how Superman is. Uh, but, uh, you know, after that, he takes care of these two hoods in about uh, a split second. He taps them on the shoulder, knocks them right out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he whisks Lois and an ailing Dave to a nearby hospital. Dave needs a blood transfusion, and the only one with a matching type is Lois. Yeah, because they both have that ultra rare I know. negative uh, blood, which is, you know, you know, only the universal blood type. Yeah, you think they would have researched this? It's like that's literally the most common blood, <laughs> you know. Not, not in Little Africa. It's not. No, I guess. Uh, <laughs> now Lois gives some blood and saves Dave's life. Later, Lois confronts Superman. She must be dizzy from blood loss. Yeah, here, here's the conversation we've all yes. been waiting for, where Lois Oof. says, "Look me straight in the eye and tell me the truth." Do you love me? Suppose I couldn't change back. Would you marry me, even if I'm black, an outsider in a white man's world? Now, Superman responds, and he actually has a decent response instead of saying, when did we get engaged? Yeah. He says, uh, (laughs) you asked that of me? Superman? An alien from Krypton? Another planet? A universal outsider? I don't even have human skin. It's tougher than steel. But your skin is the right color. Ooh, she went there, didn't she? Girl. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Superman replies, You know I couldn't risk placing you in deadly danger from my foes. They try to hurt me by killing you. I've heard that same song before, Superman. Do you always have to play the same broken record when I mention marriage? Listen. And over these next four panels, Lois changes back into her old white self again. And and the fact that she says that uh you know, this is a broken record. Tells you that he does not want to marry you at this point, no yeah. matter what color, shape, size. I mean, it's uh, it's it's really strange because the argument was never like you know that she's the wrong color or anything. It's that he yeah. he doesn't want to get attached because he feels like she'd become a target, and he says that right here. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's and true. It, whatever color you are. And in the lowest books of this era, Superman has something of a marriage fetish. Yeah, he's always trying to get married to these superpowered women because he won't put them in danger. Yeah, and uh, he, he did. He, Lois he, is never one of them. He he married a couple, couple of alien women from other planets, and you know yep. other superpowered women. But and Lois is not thrilled about that. But uh, yeah, it's very strange her argument here. It's like a, you know, first deal with the fact that the the first <laughs> issue of him why he won't marry you, and then we'll talk about whether or not he's racist or what. Yes. Um. So, so she changes back to her white self. She yeah. changes back. She retains her uncanny self sense of rhythm. I'm sure. <laughs> now this whole argument, uh, you know, like we said, it has there's no sense here. Uh, they're not engaged, uh, and he's already said that he wouldn't marry her a long, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but he does pine for her as Clark Kent. 
So, uh, which is, you know, the dynamic that this series and this family yeah, of that's series the whole is thing. Attacked. Yeah, that's why you're that's why you're Superman's girlfriend, not his yes. wife. <laughs> <laughs> now, a nurse comes into the room, uh, stunned to see that Lois has turned into a white woman. I'm surprised she didn't just faint dead away. I mean, would, would, how would yeah. you react if you came into a room <laughs> and somebody had totally changed their skin color? You'd be like, "What the hell happened?" <laughs> exactly. Now, Dave. Our uh, our friend here is uh, asking to see her to thank her for the blood. Lois says to Superman, "He called me Whitey, his enemy. What will he say now?" To which Superman says, "You must see him, Lois, so you'll never find out. If he still hates you with the blood, with your blood in his veins, there may never be peace in this world." Uh, you know, it's not like Dave was in a position to reject the blood transfusion. Yeah. You know, it's, he kind of he kind of was unconscious and dying. But I get Superman's point. That's fine. Yeah, that, he, that's a beautiful say, notion. Uh, I don't want any type white negative. Exactly. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, over a series of seven panels that take up the entire page, we see Dave's reaction. It changes from shock to warmth, and at the end, he and Lois clasp hands in friendship. It's pretty corny, but you know the sentiment is there. Sure. Uh, this story is over, but the other half of the book is a Rose and Thorn story, also written by Kaniger, drawn by Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito. But eh, I think we've embarrassed ourselves enough for one day. Yeah, there, there's no uh, race relations in the Ro- Rose and Thorn book, but it's just, yeah. you know, I think... You're not going to fix any social issues there. I think we've done our duty here, and besides, this is all about Lois Lane, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about where she went after this. In uh, 1986, she had a two-issue miniseries written by Mindy Newell and with art by Gray Morrow. This takes place in pre-crisis continuity despite being published after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, in this uh, two-part story, Lois investigates child abductions. It's pretty good, too. Uh, and Gray Morrow's art is fantastic in it. I wouldn't expect he would be a good fit for it, but it's very, very good. Yeah, I, I, I've only ever seen this cover, but I've never never cracked at it. It's cracked it, so I'll uh, check it out. I think some lousy blog covered it a while back. So, oh, okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> you can dig into that and uh, find that. But uh, uh, we also have something I did look at, which I did not love, but it was Lois Lane and the Resistance, and that was a Flashpoint miniseries written by Dan Abnett and uh, Annie Lanning. Lois is abducted by Amazons and drafted into the ongoing war with Atlantis. She escapes and joins the Resistance. Uh, you know, the idea was okay. I kind of remember this one being a little bit of a bore, but it was all it right. Was. Superman Lois Lane, uh, or Superman colon Lois Lane, uh, that came out in 2014. That was a one-shot written by Marguerite Bennett. Bennett? Benet? Uh, I remember it being okay. Yeah, it was just a. It's. It felt like a, like an annual kind of. It just didn't matter really. Wasn't there something about? Uh, God, I can't remember. Everyone was getting infected by some virus, right? That was. That was. I uh, think so. It was okay. It wasn't anything yeah. crazy over. Now, uh, Lois has also uh, had a recent collection uh, put out in 2013. Lois Lane, a collection of a celebration of 75 years. Is a hardcover collection featuring many of Lois's early and notable appearances. It also uh, features a Gary Frank <laughs> cover, which makes her look like she's on crystal meth. It does. She's like baring her teeth very weirdly. Uh, yes, her teeth and her eyes are sunken. It's, yeah. it's not pleasant to look at. Um, of course, there was Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, which ran from 1993 to 1997 on ABC. Original title was Lois Lane's Daily Planet. Um, featured Terry Hatcher as Lois Lane. 
uh, series was more romantic comedy than high action superheroics. Uh, had a decent, maybe what half season, and then kind of went to crap. Yeah, my, um, my grandmother liked it a lot. So take from that what you like. There you go. <laughs> uh, there's also currently a young adult series of novels. Uh, there was Lois Lane Fallout in 2015 by Gwenda Bond. They're all by Gwenda Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2016, there was Lois Lane Double Down, and uh, in uh, 2017, it's scheduled for Lois Lane Triple Threat. That's cool. I mean, I would think with three books going, it's doing reasonably well. So you figure, yeah. That's good to hear that. Uh, I assume I assume these are YA novels, uh, yes. obviously a young adult. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear it. So now we're going to talk about the uh, history of black people in comics, both uh, as represented and uh, creators in comics. And this could be our very last episode for this reason. This is <laughs> sort of a touchy issue, but we will just try to lay out the simple facts as we always do. Now, it should come as a shock to no one. Comics were pretty racist in the beginning. Uh, indeed, the very first comic strip, what a lot of people consider, including myself, the very first real comic strip was R.F. Outcalls Hogan's Alley that ran in the New York world in 1895. It's better known as the Yellow Kid uh, that moved over to the New York Journal American in 1896 when William Randolph Hearst lured Outcalls away with more money. But actually, the comic ran simultaneously in both of them. They had somebody copy his style for the world. Anyway, that's a story for another another podcast. But yes. it stars with basically a vile stereotype of an impoverished, un- uneducated Irish kid. Not a Chinese kid, as I've heard it said, even though he's yellow. He is supposed to be... Yeah, yeah, he's supposed to be Irish, uh, even though... the stereotypes have changed through the years, but uh, he's living on the Lower East Side of New York City, and in the background, there are plenty of lazy black folks, cantankerous Italians, sometimes a sly Chinese guy. It's a real smorgasbord of bigotry, these these comics. Uh, now, Windsor McKay's much-lauded Sunday strip, Little Nemo in Slumberland, that began October 15, 1905, in the New York Herald. That featured a character named Imp, which was basically a short African stereotype in blackface. Yeah. Uh, now, possibly the first major African-American protagonist in the comic was Lothar in Lee Falk's newspaper strip, Mandrake the Magician. Appearing from 1934 on, he was Mandrake's uh, sidekick and uh, passed up a royal African inheritance to travel with him. Well, who wouldn't, Chris? Come on. Exactly. exactly. I, you know, I keep getting these emails about inheritances from, <laughs> from, <laughs> from princes. Yeah. <laughs> and I keep passing them up, too, so maybe I'm in, I'm in line here. Um, now, initially, he was a brute in a grass skirt named uh, the strongest man in the world. In uh, 1965, he was updated to wear suits and to be uh, more verbally articulate. Only 30 uh, years, that's all. No oh, you know, time, time moves slow in comics. Uh, <laughs> now, Marvel Comics, which was at that point timely, featured uh, Whitewash, a young character that looked like a white kid in blackface. Uh, in Young Allies, which ran from 1941 to 1946, uh, a series about a ragtag bunch of Nazi-fighting kids led by Captain America and Toro, who's the original uh, Human Torch. And that was a Joe Simon, Jack Kirby uh, creation. Production, yes. Yeah. Um, now, there was a comic called All Negro Comics, with one issue. This was a comics anthology published by Philadelphia-based publisher of the same name in June 1947. 1947. Yeah, this. I mean, amazing, this, right? This, this is right after World War II. Uh, yeah. You know, it just shows that a change is on the horizon. But this is absolutely really low on the horizon right here. Um, <laughs> uh, this is a. a uh, it was the first comic book to feature all African American creators, uh, specifically uh, African American journalist Oren Cromwell Evans worked for the Philadelphia Record. That was a daily paper that began publishing in 1877. 
but it closed in 1947, so Evans teamed up with former colleagues Harry T. Saylor and sports editor Bill Driscoll to form All Negro Comics. This was 48 pages, had a glossy cover with pulp paper interior. Like many other comics, it looked just like every other comic on the stands, except that the characters were all black. Uh, it sold for 15 cents, which was a little high at the time. Most comics were 10 cents. Featured the work of Evans and his brother George G, George J. Evans Jr. as writers, and in an editorial capacity, the art. Oh, sorry, uh, they were also in an editorial capacity, and the art of local artist John Terrell Cooper, and a Baltimore artist that signed his name Cravat. They probably wrote their own scripts. Uh, not only was this written and drawn by African Americans, but all the characters were African Americans. Some of the portrayals, however, leaned towards the same negative stereotypes exhibited in mainstream comics. Though it should be mentioned that was usually the bad guys of the comics, were yeah. the zoot suit wearing, shiftless, you know, dice rolling, what have you. Uh, a character named Lion Man was an African American scientist sent by the UN to oversee a uranium deposit on. Africa's Gold Coast, so that was kind of unusual. And another character in the comic, Ace Harlem, was a highly capable police detective working in, you guessed it, Harlem, New York City. So there were uh, good examples of, you know, uh, protagonists in there that were. Yeah, bucking the stereotypes and all that. Yeah. Um, we also have a Negro Romance, ran for three issues in 1950 by Fawcett Comics, the same folks from, uh, from Captain Marvel Law. Uh, it's notable in that it issued uh, African-American stereotypes, and the stories might have been interchangeable with white characters. It's just, uh, you know, a different skin color. Mm -hmm. uh, Fawcett also published uh, short-lived comics featuring uh, champion boxer Joe Lewis and the barrier-breaking baseball player Jackie Robinson. So they must have had they must have had an audience. They must have known there yeah. was an audience for this kind of thing, yeah. Sure, sure. Or at least it wasn't as going to be as vilified as uh, we, we might think with hindsight. Right. Um, now we're talking about Matt Baker. Uh, Clarence Matthew Baker was born December 10th, 1921 in Forsyth County, North Carolina. Uh, he's one of the very few, or may have been the only, African-American cartoonists to find reasonable success in the industry. Uh, prevented from joining the Army due to a heart condition, he entered comics through the uh, Jerry Iger Studio, uh, also known as the Eisner and Iger Studio, but Eisner had been, he'd been drafted into war. Um, first confirmed comics work was penciling and inking the women in a 12-page Sheena, Queen of the Jungle story in Fiction House's Jumbo Comics number 69. That was uh, November 1944. He would uh, revamp the Phantom Lady for Fox Comics in Phantom Lady number 13, cover date uh, August 1947. Uh, this uh, took over the numbering from the canceled title, What a Life, yeah, so which he, he you know, happened on, a lot. Yeah, and he, he worked on it from the beginning is what, it's, is what it is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, this is the character's current and best-known incarnation. Uh, in 1950, Baker penciled what has been called the first graphic novel, and we've discussed it a little bit in the past. It's mm. called It Rhymes with Lust, which was written by Arnold Drake and Leslie Waller and uh, published by St. Public, John Publications. Uh, he continued to freelance for Atlas and other public publishers. Uh, in the 1950s, he teamed up with anchor John D'Agostino and did work for Charlton under the portmanteau uh, Matt Bakerino. <laughs> I, like I think that. I had a can of that in the uh, pantry. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, he uh, passed away prematurely of a heart attack on August 11th, 1959. Uh, Matt Baker was inducted to the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 2009. Yeah, very accomplished guy. And, and if you Absolutely. see his artwork, you've, I think you saw 
a little bit of it rhymes with lust. It's, yes. It's very capable. I wouldn't call it very revolutionary, but capable, good artwork. Um, now the comics code. We keep bumping into this little little bit of comic lore. <laughs> comes up quite a bit, but uh, just a little recap on this. It was spurred on by the publication of Seduction of the Innocent by Dr. Frederick Wortham in 1953 and the banning of EC Comics Panic Number no. 1 in early 1954. Uh, the United States Senate, the the United States Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, chaired by Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver, held hearings in New York and Washington D.C., and this would lead to the formation of the Comics Code Authority, which was a collection of publishers and one New York City judge that would police and censor their own publications. We go over all this in the great detail in the first five episodes of Weird Comics History, which can be found in the regular Weird Science DC Comics podcast feed and on Chris's website, chrisisoninfiniteearths.blogspot.com. Now, uh, one of the first conflicts was over a story called Judgment Day, and we talked about this uh, during that, mm -hmm. during our series there. This was written by Al Felstein and drawn by Joe Orlando. Uh, it was initially printed in Weird Fantasy number 18, uh, cover date April 1953. It was slated for reprint in Incredible Science Fiction number 33, uh, February 1956, to replace an Angelo Torres-drawn uh, story titled Eye for an Eye that was outright rejected by the Comics Code Authority. Uh, it might be worth mentioning that EC Comics publisher William Gaines actually convinced the CCA to begin with, uh, but left in disgust after the first meeting. Uh, you know, this is another thing we've covered at great length. Yeah. Um, now, Gaines was convinced that the CCA objected to it because the central character in the story was African-American, which was a vital point to drive home the uh, pertinent uh, commentary. Though they claimed it was due to the sweat droplets on the main character's face, <laughs> yeah. it's it's one of those things you actually you have to see to believe because it's so silly. Yeah. Um, now Gaines threatened the CCA that if they didn't he didn't get their seal on uh, Incredible Science Fiction number thirty three, the whole world would find out why, which caused them to relent and they said, okay, you can have your story with a black man in it. Now, despite this win, EC Comics business was floundering, and would soon he'd soon quit comics altogether to concentrate on Mad Magazine, uh, another topic that we discuss in great detail in Weird Comics History. This is uh, episode 12, which was part one of our History of Underground Comics. So yeah. plug, 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 yeah. plug, plug. Got to plug the other <laughs> ones here. Um, now, notwithstanding attempts like this in the 1950s, things weren't exactly racially sensitive in comic books still. Uh, in the rest of the world, segregation was still the law, the rest of the American world at least. And yeah. Rosa Parks and civil rights demonstrations led by Martin Luther King Jr. would partly become to define the decade. Dell Comics debuted the first comic to headline an African-American character, Lobo. Uh, not the Lobo you not might be thinking Lobo. of. It was a Western, yeah. a Western comic about an African-American cowboy that ran for two issues, December 65 and then September 1966. Now we really can't talk about uh, African-American superheroes without starting with the Black Panther. Sure. Yeah, he debuted in uh, Fantastic Four number 52 in July 1966. It's T'Challa. Is, is we saying T'Challa? Yeah, that's, that's how I always say it. Yeah. I, I've never, I don't think I've ever said it out loud, actually. <laughs> <laughs> now, he's the king of Wakanda, and I've never seen the movie, so I don't know how they said it in that. Uh, he is the king of Wakanda, which is a fictional African uh, nation. Uh, he's also an Avenger, which really is, you know, nothing special these days. I think I'm an Avenger. You're an Avenger. Everyone, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm a West Coast Avenger these days. Um, he was the uh, first mainstream black superhero. Uh, but remember, he's from Wakanda, so he's not African-American. Yeah, he's African, he's, yep. 
Yes, so you, you can't have a politician go over there and smile at all the African Americans, <laughs> which has happened recently. Wow. Well, somewhat recently. Um, <laughs> uh, he would. Uh, he was originally conceived by Jack Kirby as a uh, character called the uh, Coal Tiger. <laughs> which, okay. Which is not a great name. But okay. <laughs> no. No. He uh, joined the Avengers in issue number 52, which was May 1968. Uh, briefly changed his name to the Black Leopard. And that was Fantastic Four 119, February 1972. This was to avoid, you know, a conflation and the connotation that he was connected to the political party, the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Um, he got his uh, first starring role in Jungle Action Number 5, July 1973. And that was a reprint of his initial Avengers debut. A new series began with the following uh, issue, uh, written by Don McGregor and drawn by Rich Buckler, Gil Kane, and Billy Graham. Uh, some of Klaus Janssen and Bob McCloud's first professional professional inking work as well. Uh, sales of Jungle Action, as may be expected, were kind of low. Uh, and Marvel relaunched to this Black Panther, which uh, went, went for 15 issues, uh, January 1977 to May 1979. Since then, the character has been, he's been a ubiquitous presence pretty much in Marvel. Yeah. Uh, he's published uh, either a regular series or has been part of a run or part of a team. Sure. Uh, he currently re- enjoys a well-regarded run written by author uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates with art by Brian Stelfreeze. Yeah, I've, I've read a couple of them. They seem okay. I would be lying to say I'm very knowledgeable about Black Panther, but I, I think what was really revolutionary also about this character, besides being the first black superhero, is that hmm. it depicts this uh, Wakanda as being an affluent, technologically savvy African nation. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, bucking the stereotype of the grass skirts and the, you know, uh, no, you know tribes and stuff. Yeah, they do all the exporting of vibranium and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty hardcore place. He's always giving tech to the Avengers. I mean, he's basically like until more recently, uh, Tony Stark became their tech guy. But before him, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was T'Challa. T'Challa, yeah. yeah. So that was, uh, that was pretty interesting. But not long after that, they would debut the Falcon or Falcon, debuted in Captain America number one seventeen, September nineteen sixty nine. This is Sam Wilson of Harlem, New York City. He's Steve Rogers' pal and also the Falcon who hangs out with and sometimes supplants Captain America in the comic books. His mm-hmm. Falcon has a Falcon pal named Red Wing, which may be ironic, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> he, is the, he is the first mainstream African-American superhero. In 2008, Gene Colan recalled, in the late 1960s when news of the Vietnam War and civil rights protests were regular occurrences and Stan, always wanting to be at the forefront of things, started bringing these headlines into the comics, one of the biggest steps we took in this direction came in Captain America. I enjoy drawing people of every kind. I drew as many different types of people as I could into the scenes I illustrated, and I love drawing black people. I always found their features interesting, and so much of their strength, spirit, and wisdom written on their faces. I approached Stan, as I remember, with the idea of introducing an African-American hero, and he took to it right away. I looked at several African-American magazines and used them as the basis of inspiration for bringing the Falcon to life. Uh, this currently has an ongoing also where he is the real government-sanctioned cat, uh, titled mm-hmm. Captain America, Sam Wilson, written by Nick Spencer and currently drawn by uh, Paul Renaud, I think. I'm not sure. They might. They just switched artists. I'm not sure how mm-hmm. permanent he is, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I, I have no knowledge of that series, unfortunately, or either way. Um, now, John Stewart is another uh, another prominent character. He debuted in uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 87, uh, January 1972. He was created by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Uh, he's an architect 
and a veteran of uh, the U.S. Marine Corps. I think he, uh, I don't remember which war they had him fighting in at first, but um, I think it was Vietnam, wasn't it? I think it was Vietnam, yeah. Because um, yeah, he's a young dude. Yeah, yeah. He's, like, he's like in his early 30s, so it would have had to be, I think. Yeah, and uh, see, uh, he's John Stewart of uh, Detroit, Michigan. He's selected as a backup to Hal Jordan after Guy Gardner is seriously injured. Uh, we go into Guy's story during a previous Cosmic Treadmill where we discussed uh, Guy Gardner Warrior 29. Yeah, I forgot. I didn't know that issue number, but I remember it was Guy Gardner Warrior. Yeah, and Guy, uh, he tries to charge his ring on Hal's battery, and it explodes in his face. Yay. Yeah, there you go. Now, the idea came from a conversation between editor Julia Schwartz and Neil Adams. Neil says, we ought to have a black green lantern, not because we're liberals, but because it makes sense. And doubtlessly, doubtlessly because Marvel had already had two black superheroes and DC had none. Yeah, I think that probably factored into things. <laughs> Just a touch. <laughs> um, it might be worth uh, noting, saying that uh, Neil Adams was one of the first mainstream artists to he could draw a convincing black person. Yeah, it's not you know not exaggerated uh, features. Yeah, uh, Gene or, or just would, or just a white guy with with brown black skin, ink. dark yeah, skin. Yeah, so it, he really did. It, it was interesting. Like, yeah, these guys could do this. Yes, and uh, Gene Colan would have been the other that could do that. Yeah, uh, John can currently be seen in Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, written by Robert Venditti, and drawn by uh, artists Rafa Sandoval and Ethan Van Sciver. I mean, we could go on from here. Like, we got Luke Cage, Power Man. We've got uh, Black Lightning, Storm. Uh, the, the, you know, suffice to say, the inclusion of non-white superheroes became and continues to become more frequent and arguably less stereotypical. Yeah, I mean, up until I mean, if we just even go in the last few years, we'd be going on for probably another hour. So certainly, uh, it keeps coming. But the, I think one thing we got to talk about is Milestone Media. Absolutely. Uh, this was an entertainment company founded in 1993 by Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cohen, Michael Davis, and Derek T. Dingle. Created Milestone Comics from that, produced and distributed by DC Comics. This was a bunch of books set in the Dakotaverse, named for the fictional Midwestern city of Dakota, featuring non-white superheroes and characters. Though produced by DC, they did not exert any editorial control. That was all controlled by the four gentlemen uh, mentioned before, except to ref except for refusal. Yeah, and this usually gets a. Uh, you, people usually think of this as like the black comics, but it, it's really not. I mean, there's it's just more not white than it is pure, you know, black comics. Yeah. There's Asian heroes, there's Dominican heroes, there's a. Uh, it, it's very diverse. Yeah, and I, as more I diverse than it gets credit for. The stories are you know more or less typical superhero stories, you know, aren't they? Like they're they're not really breaking the mold here to. Uh... Uh, it's not gratuitous. I mean, it's uh, it's just good good comics. It's yeah. not a uh, yeah, not not anything that uh, it's not anything as preachy or anything like we just read in in Lois Lane or that's, something like that's that. That's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not it's not they're not like constantly aware of their non whiteness the entire time. No. Um, first wave of these titles were Hardware, Icon, Blood Syndicate, and Static, and the second wave of these titles were Shadow Cabinet, Zombie, Cobalt, and a title called Heroes. Yes. Uh, Imprint was was well received and critically laud lauded, but it fell victim to the industry's near collapse and om at almost precisely the minute that the uh, Imprint was yes. created. I mean, it couldn't have happened at a worse time. But I, to be fair, Hardware had 50 issues. Static yep. had 45 issues. Icon had 42. This is uh, no small feat for a comic book series of any era. Uh, and none of their titles had fewer than six issues. So this was yep. popular at a time that it was real tough to sell comics. 
It was. It was a success. I think you could say it was a success. Absolutely. For sure. uh, well, you know, it it it, it perseveres to this day. Uh, and absolutely. Probably its most famous uh, incarnation in 2000, the character Static was licensed to Warner Brothers to create the cartoon Static Shock, which ran for four years on the kids' WB. Uh, theme song composed by Lil Romeo and his dad, Master P. Remember mm. those guys, Chris? Sorta. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Static would also be featured, though much older, as a member of the future Justice League and the Batman Beyond cartoon uh, in the comic. Static would join the Teen Titans pre-Flashpoint. I remember Static from Batman Beyond and a little bit from his cartoon, probably best. Um, yeah. And it's been cool. Static also appeared in Young Justice cartoon and on Brave and the Bold cartoon. But as we always say about the latter... <laughs> Who didn't? Uh, if, yes. you're a, if you're a DC character, you probably were on that cartoon. Uh, and for the new 52 in 2011, the Dakotaverse was folded into the DC universe and spawned a few comics that were quickly canceled. Yes. Uh, the initial attempt at folding, folding the Dakotaverse into the mainline DCU occurred in 2009, Justice League of America's storyline, Welcome to Sundown Town, which led to a two-part miniseries called Milestone Forever. This took a look at Dakota characters as part of the DCU. Zombie received a short-lived horror-type series just prior to the new 52 with some great Fraser Irving art. Uh, that, was, that was weird, but it was uh, pretty good. I, I, now, Zombie is the voodoo kind of character. Isn't that like a skull face guy? I, I really know very little about these, I, I, I confess. I want to say it was like, I think they just reused the name. Oh, it seemed okay. like a totally different, uh, totally different animal. Yeah, this is something I think I need to uh, brush up on. Definitely a big blind spot for me. And uh, mm. this might be a great time because as of 2016, DC owns the Milestone Comics characters outright. Mm -hmm. uh, Milestone Media currently lists among Cohen and Dingle, Reginald Hudlin, who is known to many as the guy behind Bebe's Kids and Django Unchained, but known to Chris as the guy who squandered the entire Christopher Priest Black Panther run among their members. Yeah, I loved that run, and uh, it went away real quick. When when he showed up, is that he, when he that, showed up? Yeah. They, yeah, they redid it, and it all became about him marrying Storm because they had a team up forty years ago or something like that. Oh, they were also the you know two they were the black two characters. There you go. <laughs> and uh, you know, no matter how forward thinking we are, you're not going to no interracial marriages in comics until recently. So that's the yes, list. except unless, <laughs> unless you count Scarlet Witch and Vision, but. That maybe that's a whole other podcast. So <laughs> don't even want to get into that. We I think we've already stepped in it as much as we can possibly step in it this time, sure. Chris. Uh, gonna you know sometimes you got to know what to fold. fold them, and I'm not sure that we even did that at the right time. But we hope you guys found it interesting. And if you have any comments or corrections, or you want to uh, talk about other instances of African Americans and uh, other non-white people in comics. You can email us directly at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find our writing uh, pretty much almost every week uh, in reviews or some other writing on weirdsciencedccomics.com. Follow me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, every week you should go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com. He does a uh, review of a DC comic every single day of the week. I think you're up to 306 or 8. 300 and yeah around there yeah. yeah without missing a day and uh it's really it's it's great it's entertaining and it's also a great place to go find links to our podcasts if you want to listen to them so yes. <laughs> um that's it's your one-stop shopping for comics history and dc comics history uh in specific but i think that that is it for now uh i think we've done as much as we can do to toby toby's comic as we can yes. <laughs> uh you got anything else for him chris um 
We haven't gotten a correct response to our trivia question. That's right. We did not get a response. So that means uh, we are going to fold that over. It's going to become a $10. And in fact, we probably should have done it in this episode, but time, you know, time is running yeah. away from us here. But <laughs> ne next time we do Cosmic Treadmill, there will be a $10 uh, Comixology gift certificate available when we uh, figure out what trivia question we want to ask. Sure. So. Sure. Uh, but anyway, we really thank you people for listening, and until next uh, couple of weeks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill inclusively. See ya. I ain't black. I ain't white. I ain't black.